My name is Trip Borman, and on this episode of Sumia VC, I sat down with Mads Peterson, co-founder and CEO of Bogota-based Hippo Bill. Prior to founding Hippo, Mads worked at Founder Institute and held a number of different roles at startups, accelerators, and venture capital firms in Bogota, including at Tool, Marathon Labs, Latin Expansion Group, and Imaginamos. In this episode, we talked about how Mads and Hippo got into Y Combinator by disagreeing with a YC partner during their interview how he saved $9,000 for a customer, just paying $25, and why Latin America isn't that dangerous. We discussed all this and more in this episode of Samia VC. Okay, Mads, could you start by telling the audience a bit more about your work history up to and including your current role founding Hippo.Build? Sure, sure. Uh, hi, Trip, by the way. Um, I'm, uh, so I'm originally from Denmark, and I've I've basically always been uh, an entrepreneur. I've always built things and and created things, and it's just been like a, a disease or an infection since very early on. I started my first company back in high school when I was 15, 16 years old. Um, then I moved to London to do a bachelor's degree in international business after high school, and there I started another company in the cryptocurrency space in 2013. I worked in private equity, and then I started a small company in um, uh, the medical device industry. Uh, we couldn't get a patent in the end uh, after about a year of going around that. So after that, um, I moved to Colombia, where initially I worked in product development in a uh, yeah, in a product development company. Then I did corporate innovation in a very big corporation here in Colombia. Then I did product in a B2B fintech. And two years ago, I quit my job there. I did some odd jobs for a year, working part-time in a VC firm, uh, going in and assisting a fast-growing startup here in the construction space on their fintech strategy and how to approach that and just general uh, product consulting. And a year ago, I was uh, full-time on Hippo. And uh, yeah, that's been the last uh, 12 months. Could you tell the audience more about Hippo? Why did you start it? How did that idea come about? What problem does it solve? Give us that whole arc for those who might not know about Hippo yet. Sure. So when I was doing corporate innovation, I was basically hired to connect the bank, the insurance, and the construction company for this big corporate to design solutions for the subcontractors of the construction company, sort of tying in these different areas. And from that view, I just saw a million problems that that they had. Like to 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 put it into context, a, a small and medium construction company basically before they start a project, they'll do a back of the envelope calculation on if this doesn't go well, how likely is it that my company will go bankrupt? And that's a pretty, pretty intense sort of calculation and consideration that you have to do before starting any project. Because one little mistake is your company. It's not just, oh, the project didn't go well, or oh, I can't pay, or oh, the, the bank is going to be upset at me. No, your company will literally go bankrupt. So I started looking into that and I saw that they have very poor software uh, implemented. They basically go out and buy whatever software they can get their hands on, Trello, Excel, uh, Microsoft Projects, uh, QuickBooks, etc. And they sort of build a, a crappy version of a construction ERP 
where big companies, they can afford to pay Oracle or CMIC thousands of dollars a month, but smaller ones just, just can't, can't afford that. So they end up having this this dispersed software that doesn't really work for them like it it solves these specific tasks but you end up having a single person in the middle usually the owner copy pasting information from one side to the other uh, calling the job site how much cement do we have left did we finish the task from yesterday what about the quality control report where is that where's that invoice and then updating all these systems and instead of going out and trying to build a competing ERP and saying, oh, we'll just, you know, build a project management tool and this tool and this tool, we felt that it was, that wasn't really what the market needed or what a construction company needed. They just needed to automate the owner's work out of that. Let's just connect this tool with that tool, start sending information from one side to the other. And the other problem was that, well, it's super expensive to get for them to acquire the software. So why... Why don't we make it free or very close to free at least? Because the construction company might not spend a lot of money on software, you know, two or $3,000 a year, but they spend millions of dollars on materials and they're overpaying for materials. So why, why are they overpaying for materials? Well, that's because major providers of materials can't sell efficiently directly to a medium construction company. But if I have access to all these companies and I know what they're building, when they're building, what their budget is, how much money do they have in the bank, when are they going to buy the next stuff? And if I know that from enough companies, well, I can just go straight to major providers and sort of bridge that, that massive gap. And if I act as a trusted partner in that transaction, none of the none of the two other players will sort of feel that they're putting too much skin in the game or exposing themselves too much. So we're basically providing trust and access for for these two players in, in the industry. And, and yeah, and so far, so far, so good. It appears that this construction management, financial management for construction, this whole industry is just completely underdeveloped. You mentioned the first issue, and then you developed it into the second issue with the the, the resource mismanagement and, and difficulty working with suppliers. Is it ever difficult to stop solving all the problems and just decide to solve two problems? Are there more problems that you want to solve in the future? How did you decide that these two were the ones that you wanted to focus on for right now? So there's a million problems and these problems are very big. And I don't think that we'll ever stop trying to solve problems since we feel that most players in the space are, are very, um, uh, self-censored or very focused on just maximizing revenue from the construction company. We saw our hypothesis from the beginning was, well, we can build software that allows us to solve other problems. So the software solution, yeah, that, that needs to be a, a functioning product in and of itself. That needs to solve a core problem for them. But at the end of the day, the the immediate need for them is always money the immediate need is oh i'm i like i have to pay for steel and cement and my workers and license and equipment um and then the software will always be like a secondary thought oh if if i've just finished a project and it went really well well then i can look at software but it will never be their primary primary concern um so we always knew that and we decided to tackle the material side first because that was the quickest way we could give them money right into their pocket 
our first user here in Colombia, we, after two weeks of using the product, we called him up and said, hey, I've noticed that I think I can uh, sell you some cheaper uh, steel. Let me try. And they said, okay, sure. Like, what is the next thing you're going to buy and how much are you going to pay for it? Okay, this much. Then we made a a deal for them. We didn't charge anything for it. We just connected them with a better provider, better quality, actually. And they paid $131,000 for the shipment. The shipment arrived and they saved $9,000 in total. So then I called him up and said, hey, like, um, how did it go? Are you happy? And he's like, I don't understand this. I have no idea what's going on because I paid you $25, uh, you know, four weeks ago. And you just gave me $9,000. Like, how does that make sense? And I'm like, well, if if you just save $9,000, will you then stay and be my client forever and continue to give me more and more access to your software and your information? He's like, of course. Like, if you continue giving me $9,000 every time I have to buy something, yeah. And then the next thing, of course, like, let's add in financing. Let's add in the payment channels, uh, let's connect with the banks and the fiduciaries, like all that will just allow us to underwrite loans uh, faster and better. We can, instead of lending to a, for a full project, 24 months, that it's very complex. I can lend for like a specific thing and say, well, you have problems right now in paying for steel and cement to finish this part of the, the project. I can just lend you for that because once you finish this stage, the fiduciary is gonna disperse more money and my risk is minimum. So like that, that just makes a lot of sense to me. And it's, I understand why it doesn't exist, but, but that, that's where we're headed. And that's, that's what we're working for. Could you tell us more about how you got funding for Hippo and then also tell us about going through and applying for Y Combinator? Sure. So, um, like I've, I've been in Colombia now for, for six years. So my network is, is fairly okay. Um, I work with the founders of, of Rappi, uh, my first job here, uh, Colombia's first unicorn. Um, so like through that and through some other contexts, I started working with, uh, uh, with a VC fund. Um, so the idea was for them to, to put the first check in. That didn't come out uh, as, as we had hoped, but a month after, after we sort of had agreed on not working together, I landed my first angel check from Andres and Daniel Bilbao who have invested in, in quite a few good companies here in Colombia. And um, a month or two months after that, through their network and my own network, we added, uh, we did a party round of about $180,000. And then we said, well, like, of course, we have already applied for YC. Let's let's see what happens. And we didn't get any any information. No, no information, no update, no no invite for for the interview so like around october end of october is like yeah okay we're not gonna we're not gonna get there but then mid-november they say hey we um we've given you a interview date we would like to interview great 6th of december the last day that interviews were, were going okay so like right at the end right at the end fine like it was probably like let's see let's see what what happened so we we do the interview and the first five minutes is pretty standard. You know, you do like a 30 second pitch, like to get, you know, the, the, the partners up to date and they understand what's going on. And then they ask a few questions about company and the traction. And then we move into the, this is the question that we got. Um, 
so so you are very cheap right now you're the cheap option but at some point you need to move in and be more exclusive and be a more expensive option for them because that's how you're gonna maximize your revenue and i said no that's that we're not gonna do that ever and then we spent five minutes uh arguing or debating this specific topic um, so that was a majority of the interview. That was literally just me saying, well, I I fundamentally disagree because if I move up and be more expensive, I'm going to decrease the amount of companies that will use my software. And my whole play is I need more people to use my software because so so a, a large, like let's say Procore, big company, big software producer for, for the construction industry. Um, a standard deal from them is like five or six thousand dollars, let's say, a month. I can make on the same client, I can charge him fifty dollars a month, but I can make ten or fifteen thousand dollars a month selling materials and providing access to 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 financing. So why? And if if I then move further down the line to a smaller company where I can make five thousand, six thousand dollars a month. And Procore might be able to sell one software for 350, but they're not able to because 350 is too much. But I can make way more money because I'm not charging the construction company. This software is literally the key that opens up the opportunity to, to sort of bypass the whole buying decision and go straight into the decision level of the organization because I can see their budget. I can see, oh, you're going to pay um one and a half dollars for a kilo of steel well i'll sell it to you for 1.2 dollars do you want this click yes updating the entire budget and purchasing plan and project plan submitting the order with the steel provider and i'm just sitting on the side i never touch the materials i never do logistics so that to me is is such a no-brainer and it's and it was one of like the things that really pissed me off that nobody else like none of the other software companies wanted to do it. Um, they just they just want to maximize like the money they can squeeze out of the construction company instead of looking at what can I squeeze out of the transaction and the industry and the project as a whole. Um, so yeah, so so that was like I think that was really positive that that I was so energetic and adamant that I was right in this thing. Then the interview ended and. Basically, the deal is if you get an email, you're rejected. If you get a phone call, you're in. So like for three days, I'm just like updating my email. I hope there's no email from YC. I hope there's no email from YC. And there's an email from YC. It was like 11 o'clock. And it says, we, we need to do another, another interview. So then we did another interview, and uh, which was more or less the same thing, but less less energetic. I explained my position. I explained why. And then half an hour after that, my, my, my co-founder and I we went down to, to have a beer and half an hour later, they, they called and said that they wanted to offer us a position. So that was really awesome. Like very, very uh, happy that day. I love it. I want to move on and talk a little bit about the mechanics of building in, in Colombia. But first I have to ask, you've mentioned a couple of times how you've been able to connect suppliers with lower prices to customers. How do you do that? And, and how does that work on the back end? Uh, just kind of explain that a little bit because it is incredible that you, you're you just doing that from you know effectively your office. So, so basically, um, we've, we're experiencing all the different 
versions of that relationship, as you can imagine. We we contacted one of the biggest steel producers in Latin America uh, three months ago and basically pitched what we're going to do. And and they loved it. They were like, yeah, like this is literally the hardest market for us to break, um, to break into. So so great. Let's let's try it out. Here's like we'll lower the prices for you and let's see what what you can generate for us. And then we started generating, thirty five k, forty five k. This month we've done almost one hundred and fifty k in in steel alone, um, in in GMV. So so that's that's a significant enough amount for them to actually say okay let's lower the prices even more but they definitely took a chance like they they had done their calculations they knew that they wouldn't lose money on it and like why not there are others that we've reached out to like with the same pitch who are like nah like you have to do this and you have to comply with this thing and that thing and where it's like way more bureaucratic and and, and rigid to sort of break into um and um so so right now we have really good prices in in steel concrete pvc uh only in colombia um and cement like really good prices so so that's a good way for us to just drum up clients like calling up a client and asking how much are you paying for this and well i'll sell it to you for cheaper and then after one or two good transactions we bring them onto the platform and then we can start to automate that but but right now it's as we say in in spanish chinomatic it's like uh we're doing it not automatic but like a person is like literally manually connecting those two things and once like the first sale is done we have like six months of repeat buys from from that same client could you tell us why you picked columbia many years before you founded hippo and why bogota i think the best reason that you could come up with uh my wife is colombian we we studied together in London and uh, and then like immigrating to 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 Denmark is is borderline impossible. So so we said, well, I've like let's just go to Colombia. Like, what's the problem? So so we just came here. I didn't speak any Spanish. I uh, didn't have any network or or job, and just you know you just gotta pick that up and and learn and and roll with the punches and. Um, and yes, as like as I mentioned as well, like I worked in different things. I also did some consulting uh, solo. So so yeah, you just gotta you just gotta roll. You just gotta start doing it. And like, what's not to love in Colombia? Like honestly, maybe Bogota. The weather is not the best, but uh, but but the rest is uh, it's pretty nice. Could you tell us about how you met your co-founder for Hippo, how you built out a team in Colombia and some of the mechanics and things about, you know, building in Colombia that maybe wouldn't be relevant if you were building in, say, the United States or uh, Europe? Oh, that's also a very complicated question. question. Um, well, at least the answer is complicated. So so first of all, my, my co-founder, Alberto, he was like the first Colombian I met not related to my wife. He was a friend of my of my wife's cousin, and he was like, "Yeah, you guys both like tech and startups. Why don't you meet?" And then we just got along, and I sort of used Alberto as my as my personal tech support for the last uh, six seven years, where I'm like calling him up, working on a problem, whether it's for a client or consulting or in the corporate. Was like, "Oh, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. And how would you go about this? And how would you go about that? And sort of use this software. And what do you think about this solution?" And Sort of like using him, like consulting a little bit. And then when I was investigating the space and I was really, I got already quit my job. I was already already sure where I was headed. I called him up and was like, hey, look at 
look at what I'm seeing. I'm thinking about building something like this. What do you think? And I didn't know this before, but his, like a lot of people in his family are in the construction space. His cousins have a company. His dad was, uh, was, um, uh, uh, in Spanish, it's Herinde Ora, like a, a work job site manager, work job site manager. And, um, so he just picked up immediately what the problems were exactly the pain points and knew exactly how like what i was seeing in the future and how we could solve it and then uh you know back and forth for a couple of months that was like buddy man you you gotta quit your job we gotta do this and then he quit his job and a month later we had like the first check-in and and full speed ahead it's that sort of like leads on to like he he of course uh we we, in, we both interview everybody in the company but uh, we have 10 employees at the moment, uh, a few extra uh, freelancers. Um, we're all remote right now, uh, even though all of us are based in Colombia. But we do come across some problems that I don't think you see other places. Like comparing like just the US and Colombia. In, in the US, most software engineers are engineers first, and then they're, they're software. Where in Colombia, most developers are developers they learned it online they learned it by themselves they learned it on youtube or wherever and one out of a hundred are like have that engineering understanding let's break down the problem let's figure out how to solve in the most efficient way possible um but but not everybody is is like that so so one it's hard to find that one out of a hundred who's like an engineer first then if they speak english prices have exploded the last three years like uh, average salaries i think have increased with 4x in the last three years so and that's because like u.s companies are hiring a lot of talent in latin america it's cheaper it's easier uh, and then like the time zone is the same so so why not like uh, i contacted a friend of mine who i worked with seven years ago and i said hey like i'm building this thing do you want to come on board we'll pay you three thousand dollars or four thousand dollars a month plus shares and he's like, oh man, that sounds really, really awesome. But I'm being paid 10 plus years. And then it turns out that it's, I know this, I knew the CFO of the company where he was hired, who was, who was Danish. So I called him out, I was like, what the hell, man? You're, you're buying up all my talent. You're paying too much. And salaries really have exploded. And we as a company, we're quite picky, particularly with engineering talent. We really need them. We, we really need that price to be justified. Um, but the, the team we have right now, they are extremely hard workers, extremely cool guys, uh, and girls and, um, and, and yeah, we, we, we definitely couldn't be, be happier with them. Do you tell us, you, 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 you've mentioned a couple of times that you've had many different experiences in Colombia before founding Hippo. What were maybe one or two of the highlights of things that really, uh, both told you about how Colombia works, Latin America works as a market, and then also kind of. Uh, you know, made it so you knew that you wanted to found something yourself in Colombia. So always, I always knew I was going to to found something. Like I always nerd around with things on the side. So it was just a question of sort of what was the next thing that would make me really obsessed. Um, and and yeah, so my first job was uh, the founders of 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 Rappi. They had another company previously that's still running today. It's just a development agency uh, product developer uh, building websites and apps for other companies and i entered there and it was it was really like 
baptism by fire because the one was the, the the cultural part another one was like how do you do business here another one is like showing up and being european there's there's doors that will open for you that you don't normally have open when you're if you're local um but then there's also like massive power distance that you have to deal with like even today a lot of my employees they they feel uncomfortable telling me but I think you're wrong or I don't agree or a client told me that they don't like this feature like that. That's really difficult for them to say because there is a massive power distance. Um, so so there, there's a lot of things there. Like I, I did a lot of I like to help people. So I always like 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 now with um, with uh, YC um, application deadline like was like last week, I think. I've, I looked over like four or five different applications, like of some people that I don't really know either, just because like, that's the help that I didn't get when I did my first startup back like 15 years ago, but it's, I just like to, to help out. So I was doing that a lot as well in the beginning. And that sort of led into, to founders Institute. And that's a, you know, a pro bono kind of approach to it where you like bring together different founders and, and mentors who can show up and give classes and give their own experience and their own opinion on, oh, this is how I did product development. This is how I did fundraising. This is how I did this. And I think that's that's super valuable. Um, and that's, that's more and more of those offers in Colombia. And that wasn't really anything that existed before. Perfect segue into discussing Bogota as, a, as like a tech city compared to other Latin American tech cities. You you mentioned the weather might be a little bit uh, worse than some of the other Latin American tech cities, but how would you compare Bogota to say Mexico City, Sao Paulo, uh, you know some of the, these other uh, Latin American tech capitals, and what does it have that the others don't, and, and how is it similar? Um, like as a, as a whole, they're they're all quite similar. They're all quite similar. Universities in Colombia, and particularly in Bogota, are fairly high standard. So you do have a lot more talent here than you do in other places. It's a, it's a very big city. Like, uh, like I guess it's the it's the little brother of the of Sao Paulo and, and and Mexico City, but it's still twelve million people. It's still a massive, massive city. Now there's a lot more money. There's a lot more foreign capital coming in. With like a lot of people keep mentioning the Rapi Mafia for better or for worse, but you do have now like not necessarily massive exits, but you have people who have exited previous experience where they've been schooled outside of the country, uh, or at least with a culture from outside the country. And now they're founding more stuff. And that's just that that ripple effect is is really, really important. I think you see the same thing in Sao Paulo and you see the same thing in Mexico City. Um, I think I think Colombia as a as a market is a is a lot more forgiving. It's it's fairly easy to start start a company i think like 50 percent of the adult population in, in latin america is self-employed well in colombia is self-employed which is the biggest the highest in the world so like people have that go-getter attitude let me go and start something let me go do something mm -hmm. whether it's a little mom and pop shop or something else like that that's sort of beside the point with the with the success of, of rapi and other companies people are seeing that massive opportunity and, and they're thinking thinking long-term and they're thinking in that sense. So, and there's a good community here. A lot of people, a lot of founders are investing in each other's companies and pulling money in. Oh, well, I know this guy, let me call this guy and he can put in 5K, 10K. You know, everything, every little bit helps in the beginning. So so I think, I think that's pretty good. And 
the fact that like Brazil and Mexico have a lot more foreign interest than Colombia, uh, at least like for the last decade. Um, so you do have a lot more competition, whatever you start in Mexico City or Sao Paulo, where in Colombia, you can sort of make mistakes early uh, and have have less risk doing that. So I think that's that's the part of the main thing. Or those two things are probably the main thing. Mads, I have two more questions. First, I'm going to ask, uh, what would you tell American tech founders that you know, maybe want to move? Uh, unlike you, you had a lot of experience before founding a startup in, in Bogota. What would you tell those tech CEOs in the U.S. that are thinking about moving and then starting something right away? Um, well, that depends on what they're going to start. Like if you want to start something that has a global focus and something that you're bringing some experience for or U.S. market, but built by Latin American engineers, well, then you need to understand the culture of managing people here. Um, primarily, I would say if you're bringing your own money, then there's no problem. Otherwise, of course, network is always a major part of fundraising and getting money. If you're going to start something for a local a audience and for a local market i think understanding that market in detail is is important there are a few success stories of like foreigners moving to latin america and in like six months launching a company that's going really well because they've seen it work somewhere else and they're just bringing in that idea sure but i think there's a disproportionate amount of companies that fail that way because, oh, I did not understand this unique thing about Colombia versus Brazil or um, like, for example, there's 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 cities in Colombia where you can see a mat like flying from Bogotá to, to Medellín. There's a massive difference, massive difference. Like in Medellín, it's like parking spaces and parking lots. It's uncommon for them to pay for it. Like that's is more more normal that the store or the mall just gives that away for free, but in 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 Bogota, that's a massive business to set up a little parking space and you know sell that out. So so even like small things like that within the country is a massive massive difference. And I think not. I think it's common if you show up and you think that oh Colombia or Mexico or Latin America is very homogenous. It's definitely not. Definitely not where. Okay, fine. You understand Germany or France. Well, then you can sell to the entire into the entire country, or um, but you can't do that in 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 a country like Colombia or Mexico or Peru. There's there's big differences from the different regions. Yet another excellently structured answer to a very broad question. You've done that a, a number of times on the interview, so I really appreciate that, Mads. But finally, I have to ask Peter Thiel's famous contrarian question, but with a uniquely Samia VC twist. What important truth about Colombia or Latin America do very few people agree with you on? Well, I I just hear a lot, and this is like particularly from foreigners like that. And also just when I had moved here from my my, my wife's family, it's very dangerous. It's a dangerous place. And it just isn't like, yeah. Like if you're an idiot and you go into dangerous areas and you wave your wallet around, you're going to get mugged. But that's going to happen in New York and Paris and Copenhagen. Like that happens everywhere. And like use your brain where you're going and understand the, the, the where you're headed and understand who you're going to see. And, you know, don't be a stupid tourist. Um, then then like then it's not dangerous. Like so. 
so I think I think that's probably the main thing, particularly when like with the image of of Colombia uh and the image of Latin America in in general oh Brazil is dangerous you're gonna get shot Mexico's really dangerous you're gonna get shot like no like calm calm down it's not it's not that bad I've been here seven years I've never I've never been bugged or assaulted or threatened or even been close to any of those things and I used to walk all over Bogota even into areas where when I come home and I like talk to my parents-in-law and they're like Oh, so where were you today? Oh, I went to this area. And they were like, oh, no, you didn't. Like, yeah, yeah, I did. Like, no problem. But like, I might have been lucky, of course, uh, statistically. But still, like, use your brain and, and you'll be fine. Come visit. It's a nice place. What a great answer. Mads, thank you so much for coming on the Simia VC podcast today. I very much appreciate your time. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for watching this episode of Sami VC. My name is Trip Gorman. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you view the podcast. And don't forget to check out our newsletter, DealFlow LA, which can be found by going to dealflow.la.